Hello, and welcome to the Tennis Abstract Podcast. This is episode 85. I'm Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com. And with me this week is a special guest. Um, his name is Stephen Blush. He's promoting his new book, Bustin' Balls, World Team Tennis, 1974 to 1978, Pro Sports, Pop Culture, and Progressive Politics. You can find him at the Stephen Blush on Twitter. And of course, you can buy the book any place books are sold, which I guess is Amazon. And presumably yeah, Amazon basically, there's no, that's pretty much the only game in town with the way the world is right now, right? Yeah, so you can buy the book on Amazon. Um, Stephen, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I'm, I'm a fan of the Tennis Abstracts, so it's very cool to be here. That's what I like to hear. I always joke about having between three and six listeners. I promise there's more. I, I need to be careful about that when I'm attracting potential guests like you. Um, we do have more than six, at least eight. And now that you've said that, I think we're up to nine in the official count. So this is an exciting day for everybody. Um, so Stephen's book is pretty self-explanatory from the title, World Team Tennis 1974 to 1978. And I'm guessing most of my listeners have either been to a World Team Tennis thing in recent years or seen it on TV, at least have a, some some idea of what it's all about. But one of the things that's striking is even though it's even though there's, there's a pretty clear linear relationship between world team tennis in the early days in the 70s and now, it's very different. So so Stephen, let's start with that. Like it, if you're if you're trying to explain 1970s world team tennis to someone who only knows it from world team tennis these days, what's different? What would take them by surprise if they were teleported back into that experience? Well, you know, you have to remember that this all comes out of uh, the battle of the sexes with Bobby Riggs. And um, if you know, if you've seen the battle of the sexes film or, uh, you know, a little of that story, um, it was a very, um, it was a very big cultural moment aside from the tennis aspect. And um, Billy Jean uh, came with this idea of gender equality through sports. They're, 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 this had been going on for a little while. If you've seen the Battle of the Sexes, they talk about the formation of the Virginia Slims Tour. And, you know, when there was not equality for men and women in terms of pay. Uh, Billie Jean and Larry King, her husband, had this idea of uh, equality on the court. They used the word intersectionality. To describe what they were selling, so uh, did they really use that word then? It was used in. I found it in the World Team Tennis magazine, which was their product. Wow, I thought that was you making making kind of a wordplay in the book. I had no idea that was that even the term was around that long ago. Yeah, I was uh, I was obviously uh, attracted by that word, but I think it really kind of uh, said it all. Um, the idea of I guess I should go back as to how I knew about this was, uh, it turns out that I had actually seen a match on TV with a cousin of mine. And I did always have this kind of memory in the back of my head and that I was able to affirm recently with my cousin to say, because he was a big fan of it. Um, but I was watching uh, American cable TV and the Madison Square Garden in New York has its own channel. And they have that uh, part where they go back into the vaults where they find old boxing matches and you know from the 1930s you know things like that so i turn on and there's billy jean king showing a 1978 match between the new york apples and the seattle cascades and of course you know the whole 70 70s ness if that's a word of it all 
um, really attracted me. The color, the garish colors, the, you know, the hair, the, clo- the, the flashy clothes, you know, the, the whole thing. But um, what you saw was uh, a different form of tennis was there was yelling and screaming and drinking and cat calls. And when I heard Billie Jean talk on this uh, Madison Square Garden network where she was giving some commentary on the footage, she spoke about Bobby Riggs. She spoke about uh, Elton John and Philadelphia Freedom, which for those people who don't know the connection, um, Elton John was deeply involved in this original world team tennis, kind of a part owner, if you will, of the Philadelphia Freedoms, which of course was Billie Jean's team. So his song, Philadelphia Freedom, that came out the next year after the 1974 season of the Philadelphia Freedoms was called, you know, Philadelphia Freedom. So, you know, metaphorically, Billie Jean was Philadelphia Freedom. Anyway, so she's talking about Elton John. She's talking about Vetus Gerolitis at Studio 54. She's talking about uh, gender equality on the courts, and she's not really talking about tennis. Uh, so that kind of set me on this path of discovery and, you know, learning, you know, how, um, you know, in a very vanilla world of the 70s, Billie Jean, uh, you know, it was closeted gay, it was, you know, attempts at multiculturalism, it was um, gender equality on the court where the biggest, um, the major event of world team tennis was mixed doubles, right? So it's like man versus woman. And what was also interesting about it, um, uh, aside from this uh, political aspect of it and the, the uh, pop culture side, as I was describing, uh, was that it was a new form of tennis. Often in a sports league, there's you know, when there's a new sports league, it's just a, more players playing the same sport. This was, I mean, I guess there had been team tennis in college, kind of as a, as a con, you know, as a, but, you know, it didn't really work. Billie Jean kind of had this idea of taking that and turning it into a league, like a Major League Baseball or NFL football or, you know, Premier League or whatever she was thinking, you know, about like really turning ten- tennis into a, a blue collar sport. So she put teams in Detroit and Chicago and Pittsburgh and, uh, you know, uh, uh, places where they thought that they would were sports towns and they uh, tried to build a uh, network. And what was interesting was this first flyer at World Team Tennis was a big deal. Um, It was celebrities were involved. Um, you know, I already mentioned a few. Johnny Carson was a part owner. Um, Bill Cosby, I know that's kind of a bad name now, but he was uh, deeply involved in, in, in a lot of this. Um, there was, you know, the, when the first match happened with the uh, Philadelphia Freedoms and the Pittsburgh Triangles in May of 1974, it, it was, you know, they sold out the spectrum in Philadelphia. I mean, it was, uh, it was not... Um, uh, 
the league you see now, and I've been to a bunch of the matches, they're, they're not arena acts. You know, they were trying to make the original attempt at world team tennis was to be filling uh, the Madison Square Gardens of America. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was a, a bold attempt, uh, but they were actually inventing it. Uh, what are, the point I was getting to is they were actually not just having a new league. They were a new sport. They invented the sport. They came with, um, there's no 15 love. It was, you know, one nothing. Uh, there was no tiebreakers. I mean, there was a super tiebreaker. There was no, you know, so there wouldn't be ongoing let. Um, so it was a, um, a redefinition of the sport and the players, some of them were, were, were made for it, right? Like, um, uh, Rosie Casals or Billie Jean King or somebody who really spoke their mind. Yeah. Uh, Gerolitis comes to mind. You're right. Gerolitis, yeah. perfect league for him, right? Perfect Avenue for him. But for a lot of the European players, it was a, terrifying experience you know they were very coddled elite athletes you know i always think back on that what was it like martina hingis versus serena williams you know martina really representing the tennis establishment right so um th there's this whole thing of like you know it's very white it's very privileged it's very um you know or it's very proper you know margaret court you know, the, the interesting thing about the, the Margaret Court, Billie Jean King rivalry wasn't, it, was, it wasn't just tennis. It was, they didn't like each other because of how they were um, as people and what, they, what, their, what their belief systems were. You know, Billie Jean was a free spirit. You know, Margaret Court was a Christian. And, you know, so anybody who was like Christian or proper or which is like most tennis players, frankly, or, or don't like being yelled at. I mean, if you think of tennis as like the ultimate in concentration and you go to a Detroit Loves match where they're serving $2 whiskeys and people are screaming, you know, it really threw people off their game. You could imagine what was being said, especially in the 70s, where there was not political correctness. You know, what they would say about, about it. A chubby per, you know, like a a woman wearing shorts instead of a dress, you know, they were going to get it like so bad for their butch thing, right? Or, uh, so you mentioned you mentioned the European players were were more coddled and didn't adapt to it as well. Um, I'm thinking of of some of the women though who uh, some of the top European women who played in the league pretty much the whole five years we're talking about, like Francois Durr and um, Betty Stova. Yeah. Um, I mean, are there, did they adapt to it or were they, were they struggling through it just for the money? Do you have well, a sense they of were, I would actually say that you, you raise really good points with those two because those, well, they're actually very different people. Um, uh, Francois Dour is very much of a social person. She's like a very much of a socialite. She played for the, I can't remember if it was the Denver Rackets moved to Phoenix, but in one of those cities, she was like, like the hippest person at every party. Yeah, you yeah. said that. I, I noticed that line, the idea that, that Francois Durr was suddenly the hit of every party on the Denver social scene. And I'm right. thinking, like, 1976 Denver? What kind of social scene are we talking about? Is there well, a high bar to clear? Sorry if anybody's <laughs> listening from Denver. I don't know. Well, well, there you go, too. But she was, like, you know, she was a tra you know, she was French. She was, you know, audacious. You know, she walked around with her dog everywhere. You know, she was kind of a, 
she was kind of cool. I don't, I don't know that much about her, but she seemed like a very cool character. Um, uh, Betty Stova was just tough, you know, and she was just there, you know, I think she was a really good player and really committed. And it was kind of a, she was kind of a mercenary, which a lot of these people were. And I don't, I don't even say that and mean that in a negative term. I just don't think that they were, uh, if you read the one thing that Billy Jean keeps talking about in the book is that, um, like they couldn't get the players to support it. The, for the players, it was just like mailing it in for a gig, you know, like, oh, I, I got three months and I'm going to get $50,000. So they don't really have any reason to like go out and do events at the shopping mall or at the local tennis clinic or, you know, or some, or some high school to raise interest in, in the team. Yeah, so, that, and that's an interesting thing as well. I was just having a, a parallel conversation with someone about early women, 70s women's tennis, that they, they played these really demanding schedules, like both within and without world team tennis, where I mean, they were playing every week, they were flying around the world. I mean, they'd go to South Africa for two tournaments, they'd go to New Zealand for a tournament. And partly they were chasing the money. I mean, mm -hmm. they, that they went wherever the money was and partly they didn't know whether it would be around so you mentioned several times in in your book that owners were frustrated that players weren't weren't doing more to promote the way that you'd expect a baseball player or a football player to do for their home team but free agency was kind of baked in not literally so but these these players were mostly switching teams every year mm -hmm. and of course they're only committed for three months of a year yep. there was lots of trades happening so it seems like it would be tough to expect more of a player to really feel that kind of mutual commitment with the Detroit loves or the, the Denver rackets when they knew that, you know, three months later, they're going to, they're going to be off doing something else. Right. Or likewise, correct. And likewise, uh, what are they promoting when they go there and there's nobody there? Yeah. It's you know? like the, the scene in the blues brothers where they, they, they're promoting at a Chicago record store and, and nobody shows up and the owner just wants to self-flagellate because it's all my fault totally on me nobody's nobody's here it's all my fault hit me please hit me um uh, and you, you meant you mentioned just in our chat before we we hit the record button here that one of the things that fascinated you was world team tennis was was americanizing tennis it was more of a, a blue collar thing and there there's more of that friction between the fact that tennis is a global sport there were all these european australian uh, players British players in the in the league, um, like how, how does that, how does that mesh with the idea that it's world team tennis? I mean, we're we're attracting players from all over the world, but it's it's this this very American thing. How did that friction come out beyond just players having to deal with heckling? Oh well, well, first of all, um, you bring up an interesting point about like <laughs> you're asking fans in Denver to come out and watch players from. France and California and, you know, wherever. Um, it, there was no connect, you know, there was this idea of like root, root for the home team, kind of try to, to push that in there. And, uh, you know, that doesn't really work. But um, when Billy Jean and Larry came out with this, uh, this idea, it, you know, the, the it really upset the apple cart, uh, the tennis establishment. And it cut 
it was going to cut through Wimbledon, French Open, and the Italian, I believe, something like that. And um, they made a decision to make their um, mid-season break during Wimbledon. So um, that that kind of got them off the hook with the British, but the Italians and the French, like really went to war on this one. And uh, if you could imagine now that in 1974 in the Australia for the the grand what, what the, for the Grand Slam, getting my sports confused. Sorry, um, they. Uh, the winners of the Australian, the first the first tournament of the year, were Jimmy Connors and Ivan Gulagong. And then they got banned from a bunch of the tournaments afterwards, so they could not have a chance to win the Grand Slam. But then they made the cardinal sin of signing with World Team Tennis. Jimmy Connors one year with the Baltimore Banners, and Ivan for a couple years with the... Uh, uh, Pittsburgh Triangles before they went out of business. And I, I think she got pregnant around that time too. So that was kind of the break or, or the, I don't know too much about her career after that. Did she have a 80s? Yeah, she career? was, she was quite successful after that. I think I, I forget when she became number one, which we, we now know, but didn't know at the time, but I think that was, that was a little later on and I think she won a slam around 1980. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. See, I didn't even know that. Um, so anyway, but they so that's kind of major. What are you? Where you actually ban the players from the upcoming tournaments, and uh, you know everybody tried to talk it out, and there was no talking it out, and uh, it was just like, how do we destroy uh, um, uh, uh, world team tennis? And it was. Um, you know, these tournaments and a couple key uh, people. Um, I'm spacing on a couple names right now. Uh, the guy who was the manager, original manager of Jimmy Connors, who ran uh, Bill Riordan. Uh, no, what's the guy's name I'm thinking of? Um, I don't know. He was, who was the guy who was uh, like the 1940s champion? Who oh, Jack Kramer. Jack Kramer, right. So, so that kind of world... Uh, Arthur Ashe, you know, those kind of people, like the tennis establishment, like just closed ranks on, uh, and, you know, they, they, they really went out to, to hurt the league and, uh, or, or to deny it business, you know, things of that sort. They were never really able to get a proper uh, TV contract, which kind of killed the league. Um, I don't. I think I'm getting away from your original question, which was something like, um, "How did the players deal with it?" or something. Yeah. Well, it, it, don't worry about that. This yeah. is interesting too. Um, and I, I did want to ask you about that. I think it's funny that that, that I think I think in in the book I made a note that you referred to the Lily White establishment of people such as Arthur Ashe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which um, no, that's why. I, yeah, that's why I did. I understand what you're saying, but there is. I, I feel like Arthur Ashe wasn't particularly Lily White. Um, well, he would, this is the deal with, with Arthur Ashe. I certainly have no, no um, beef with Arthur Ashe, but Arthur Ashe um, was very shrewd and um, he overcame incredible obstacles. But when it came to the business of tennis, he was, you know, right. He was the establishment. Well, that's the tricky thing about this time period is, is I mean, certainly Jack Kramer is, is 
as establishment as you could be. I mean, mm-hmm. from the the amateur era to the the, the pros. But I mean, I, I read this um, like great biography of Arthur Ashe several several months ago, and that period of time in the early seventies, they're really struggling too. I mean, they they're not struggling the way that World Team Tennis is struggling, but the formation of the ATP. Um, working things out with Wimbledon and the other slams, like basically just forcing tennis into the modern era. That was not easy. And it was, it was an establishment in the sense that world team tennis had to work with them or defy them some way or other, but it wasn't very established. I mean, you can see why they were, they were defensive of what territory they'd managed to carve out. Oh, no doubt. I mean, they, these people work hard and they create their own empires, right? But, um, uh, empires are made to fall, which is kind of where I think Billy Jean was kind of coming from. I mean, it's a kind of a this revolutionary spirit applied to like the most you know mainstream of sports. I mean, not that sports aren't completely mainstream to begin with, but they are the, the sports are the definition of mainstream, right? In, in many so ways. It, it, yeah, and it, and this was not just happening in tennis at this time. So there's the, the there's a boom in upstart sports leagues in this, let's say, Correct. 1965 to 1985. Yep. You mentioned them a couple times in the book. We have the the ABA, which is probably the most famous, the basketball league. There's one in hockey. There's one in football. And there's some overlap between the ownership groups. I mean, there's, there's people who just really want to get into sports. It also occurred to me that it's the same kind of impulse with all the expansion happening, even in the established sports. Uh, lots of new Major League Baseball teams around this time. Like the the whole sports world was changing really fast, and you said in your introduction that, that it turns out fans didn't really want new and different, right. um, even though there's all these promoters who are putting up a lot of money to to bet that they did. Um, I mean, it was 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 World Team Tennis too revolutionary, or was it just sort of the wrong place at the wrong time? All these people making parallel bets that seemed sensible, but really, I mean, they were doomed doomed to fail. Whether it was tennis or football or basketball or bowling. I think the, the interesting part of the world team tennis story to me is it's real. It truly is both of those. It, it really is like a failure, like doubling down on a bad idea and too ahead of its time at the same time. And that's, uh, to me, you know, if you study, if you've anybody listening has ever studied, uh, political history, um, like for instance, with the communist history, let's say there's two forms of revolution. There's the revolution that happens like within months, which is like the 1917 Russian revolution. And then there's the one that just the ideas gestate with people for 40 years. And that's Mao Zedong in China. Right. And that's the kind of, you know, that's kind of like what music is. Music's like this thing that creeps up on you. Um, The ideas of world team tennis were so, you know, the thing that people would physically recoil to are just so mainstream now. And it, and that is the visionary aspect of this league. That's, that is really what fascinated me about this story. Um, for those who don't know, I'm, I'm a music writer. That's really what I do. I write books and films about rock and roll. And I'm kind of known for this punk rock book and film called American Hardcore. And American Hardcore went to Sundance and released theatrically on Sony Picture Classics. And the point of saying that is not to name drop, but the fact is 
that it got popular and accepted on a bigger level because I wasn't just talking about, you know, was Henry Rollins the singer of Black Flag or were the Bad Brains this black band? I was talking about like radical kids in the Reagan era. So there's like a subtext to the story and the, and the overriding subtext that I found in the World Team Tennis story is this political firebrand side uh, of Billie Jean, uh, which is the kind of the roots of what we now call progressive politics. And um, there was this rock and roll, sex and drugs and rock and roll lifestyle of the 70s that it all crosses over with. So it's, you know, pop culture and pro sports and progressive politics, which is that's why that those words are the subtitle of the book. And so there, a, there's a big gender equality aspect to this. And that's a that's a note on which World Team Tennis was successful, at least in terms of putting men and women on the same court, playing against each other. Um, you mentioned a few times throughout the book that teams were making an effort to find black players and maybe the standout in the league was was John Lucas who is a, a an NBA star as well but in, Arthur Ashe never played there were very very few black tennis players at the time and the other black players who ended up signed on world team tennis rosters basically sat on the bench I mean there's a few exceptions right. yeah but no, that, I, I, that's, that's correct so um, well well go ahead go ahead I'm sorry yeah, I mean, you can you can see what the question is. Like, it, it, did they fail on this count? Is there more they could have done or should have done? Or do we just give them a pass because there was so little black tennis at the time? Yeah, yeah. you know, um, in America, they have a thing called affirmative action. And, you know, there's people who say it's good and some people say say it's bad. Um, they, were, they were coming, but it's certainly coming from the right place, the idea of affirmative action. So I think that that, that was kind of a 70s idea so i think they were really trying they 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 were really stung when um arthur ash told the cleveland nets to go fly a kite you know he just didn't even i don't think he took a phone call with him uh he uh i think that was really crushing for billy because that was her idea of where she wanted to go with this um she uh, she wanted to. Um, it was really important to have these kind of players there, um, uh, but there was a the problem was is that there was a, just a huge drop off in skill level, and uh, John Lucas was the number two black um, tennis player in America, and he was a college player at the University of Maryland who did pretty well. He made it into like the latter rounds of the NCAA finals. And he was, he was considered, a, you know, just a, just a raw talent. Like, you know, he had no real feel for the game because he was really a basketball player. In fact, that's why he wanted to be involved in world team tennis was just kind of to sit and learn a little bit too. That's why his, his salaries were so low. Um, the point about um, uh, the thing about uh, black players at American tennis was that it um, there's a, actually a long history to it. This was not just like Arthur Ashe came out of nothing. Um, there's a whole history of 
uh, black society, that kind of W.E.B. Du Bois kind of uh, cultured uh, black class and uh, tennis clubs uh, from Philadelphia, D.C., New York, you know, in the, those kind of in, in their neighborhoods. So there, there, there was a history of black tennis. Uh, Bill Cosby's probably kind of comes out of that. You know, when he started doing the Jello commercials, he was also, you know, playing tennis all the time. So um, there, this was not like a completely um, random um, racial equality grab. I think there was like a history of black tennis players, and I think there was an attempt to make them uh, attempt to have it work out. I mean, Margot Tiff, Margot Tiff uh, was probably the closest to a player who could um, uh, compete on that level. And, and she's another player who barely played. Um, but she was one of the original Virginia Slims players. I don't think she's what they call original eight, but she is, um, she's one of the original players on the tour. And she played at Cal State LA, which is what the same program that Billy Jean and uh, Larry King came out of. So, you know, she was not, she was a pretty serious player, but if you know anything, I mean, I'm sure we do know that there is a very fine line in sports between uh, star and between excellent player and star. Yeah, and especially in, in world team tennis, because if you're if you're sending somebody out there to play women's singles, then you could be sending her out to play Chris Evert or Francois Deur or I mean, some of the absolute greats of the game. So there's there's not really a, a training pipeline. That, yeah, there's, that's I, I'm trying to remember who it was. It was like Sue Barker or um, uh, Stephanie Tollison, like one of those kind of players or Diana Diane Fromholtz, like one of those kind of level players who was like the number one player on their team in world team tennis, like the number one sing women singles player. And like every night it would be Billie Jean, Chrissy, Martina. Uh, you know, the, the worst one was Betty Stova. You know, I mean, they were getting killed out there. The, the, the story of the Baltimore team, their one season, it's like I think the women won one game or something like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that it, a lot. A lot of men didn't sign up. I mean, Arthur Ashe wasn't alone in in not taking World Team Tennis's money. Uh, there were certainly lots of lots of male stars who did play, but it wasn't as universal. Whereas with the women, they didn't have as many paying options out there. So at some points, it was basically ten of the top ten playing yeah. somewhere in World Team Tennis. So and yeah, it was it, it was like playing on a college team where the only matches were number one versus number one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was absolutely brutal stuff. And then you know, two years in, Chris Everett shows up, and you've got to play her too. Martina Navratilova shows up, you've got to play her too. Um, so we were talking about John Lucas, and that's a is one of the weirdest segues in sports, uh, but still a natural one. Is he, the last year of World Team Tennis, he was playing mixed doubles with Renee Richards, the famous uh, transgendered player, competed as a man uh, early in her career had gender reassignment surgery, came back to compete as a woman, um, played some on the tour, played World Team Tennis as a woman. Uh, I mean, if, if you want to if you want to check a check a box for World Team Tennis being revolutionary, this is certainly a box you can check. And one thing that fascinates me reading her story, both in World Team Tennis and in the broader context of tennis, is how 
there's there's so much friction when she first arrives and people have to decide how do we deal with this person who's unprecedented doing this thing that maybe makes some of us uncomfortable um some of them just to be clear some of them uncomfortable not me um but then at some point it just goes away so you 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 clear all those hurdles and then suddenly she's just renee she's just one of the women players in the league i mean is it is is that your sense of of what happened with her in world team tennis that she was just sort of a they were able to absorb her into everything else that was yeah, going on. Well, the, the the struggle for Renee, uh, I mean, obviously many struggles, but uh, was to be accepted as a woman tennis player. And I want to say she was playing by as Renee Richards, uh, probably about nineteen seventy four, seventy five, um, but. For various reasons, she got drafted into the league and she didn't play one year. Um, she underwent a, the league wasn't going to let her play unless she passed some DNA test or something. And that took her out of another year. Um, she, Renee Richards was just really looking for a chance to play, you know, and, uh, the idea of playing with John Lucas, you know, it's interesting. I did an interview with somebody recently and they said, so you point to John Lucas and Renee Richards as being revolutionary and what's revolutionary about it? And I was like, what's not revolutionary about it? Yeah. Well, to them, it was like, you know, that's so normal today. And that's like kind of what we were talking about before about how normal this all sounds now, like all this stuff about intersectionality or, or uh, multiculturalism in tennis, or you know, what, or, or whatever aspect we're talking about. I mean, it's it it was just like a foreign language back there, you know. So that I said, well, that's kind of like what that is how revolutionary it was. And you know, there's there's talk, um, there's a line in there where they become real buddies, and they're uh, going to bars together after games and don't. The team they played on was called New Orleans, the New Orleans Nets. The Cleveland Nets had moved to New Orleans, which was like, you know, Cleveland was probably the worst city in America in the 70s. So to go from Cleveland to New Orleans in one year is like, you know, finding God probably um, for some of these players who had been on the roster. But um, so so because they played in New Orleans, they were also called the... Um, um, uh, the Sun Belt Nets, because the Sun Belt, the, the South was just starting to become like a, a pot, real populated area. So their idea was that they played everywhere from Lakeland, Florida, to Biloxi, to, to El Paso. You know, uh, they played the whole, you know, Austin, Texas, Baton Rouge. You know, they, they were, when they traveled, they were called the Sun Belt Nets. So these are the kind of cities that John Lucas and Renee Richards were going to in 1978. And there would be bar fights. People would drop. There's a story where uh, somebody dropped the N-word on, uh, on John Lucas and Renee slugged the guy. You know. Um, yeah, I think if, if I was going to pick a fight with somebody in a bar, um, it would not be an NBA player and Renee Richards. Yeah. I mean, that's no, just no. basic <laughs> not being an idiot. Yeah, no, it's incredible. You know, uh, uh, there's um, there's a funny pull quote in the book where I, I can't uh, say it verbatim, but uh, you have a a black basketball player and a transgender, a transsexual playing, but 
you know, the black person's, you know, you don't know how hard we have it, you know, something to that effect. And, uh, but I think the only person who really had a problem in the league was, was Renee Richards. I, I, I can't even point to another player who had a problem within the league. I mean, there was 100% acceptance of John Lucas and Margot Tiff and Lenny Simpson. There was like hardly any for uh, Renee. Um, there's a great line in it where I think it's Diane Fromholtz who we mentioned before. They said, uh, what would have happened if you lost that match in that game to Renee? And she said, drowned myself. You know, like the idea of like, I'll kill myself if I lose this, you know, if I lost this match. You know? Yeah, the, the reactions to Renee on the women's tour were, were, were certainly varied. There's one of the first tournaments she played in, in New Jersey. The first two women she played uh, retired down. They were one game away from losing the match and they, they quit instead of finishing out the match. And of course, they cited some kind of fake injury, but it was clear they were making a statement and that didn't go away immediately. Yeah. No, I, I don't know um, if it ever went away, to be honest with you. I mean, Renee is like a real, I mean, I, from this project, my, my respect for Renee just, you know, es, you know, exploded, escalated, whatever. I mean, I, I just, so impressive, like, uh, you know, and, and it's, it, it, Renee Richards, I mean, there's a lot of press about Renee Richards, but Renee Richards doesn't go out to get press. You know, Renee Richards was a, is a doctor and wants to be, wanted to be treated as a professional athlete, you know? I mean, so um, the whole struggle was, uh, it, it's pretty incredible, but that was the one player, I mean, that was almost too much for the time. You know, yeah. it, it, I mean, it, read, it, it read as a freak show, you know, that's really what happened. But let me tell you, tennis-wise, if you could find the footage, because, uh, you know, I am working on a, um, a documentary film of this, uh, that will probably be out uh, within the year, maybe. Uh, it's pretty f close to being done. Um, but, uh, you know, the footage of them playing together is really, I mean, some incredible doubles play. I mean, they really, uh, you could see how they play off of each other. That's really cool. And I'm, uh, as some of my listeners know, I'm, kind of obsessed with finding old tennis footage and that'll be super exciting to um to be able to see and i i meant to men mention this earlier i'm sure you know this steven but most of my listeners probably don't because i didn't until a few days ago um there's a lot of of world team tennis broadcasts from the 70s on youtube yes um, I, I found a bunch of them uh and there's uh there's more coming out all the time yeah, the world world team tennis itself has must have a good archive. They're they're the ones yeah, posting them. They um they've I feel like this is world team tennis has gone under. Uh, let's see how how just to, to say this as fast as possible. There was the original version of world team tennis, which I write about, which is this nineteen seventy four to nineteen seventy eight uh train wreck, you know this financial train wreck, which is uh this way ahead of its time kind of vision. And since then, there's been about five or six different incarnations of the league funded by some sort of uh, corporate entity um, and played in, you know, tennis clubs, basically. Um, so uh, it's a very, very different thing. But the 
two within the past five or six years it's been sold twice and the most recent one is the one that just finished its season during covid which might have made it its most successful season well since the original version certainly if not ever um so and this version of uh this iteration of wtt where it's i think if you look it up if you look carefully when you look up the name now it's world team is one word it's like world team tennis like i guess it was like a corporate uh, uh a trademark kind of thing that they anyway if you actually read the ones about the one the league that won that finished this past year it's like world team tennis is two words and it's a little weird if you if you if you look closely but um uh they have kind of embraced the old side a little bit and they're they've just put out a merch line of t-shirts of uh, all different versions of the old teams but included in there were the indiana loves the and and the anaheim oranges uh the new york apples and i'm not sure i'm glad you just said that i can i can feel a hundred dollars just drifting out of my wallet right now yeah we'll get the so the the soviets one is the bomb yeah oh exactly thank you i'm glad you said that because honestly if if it had been more fair to you and and talking about your book i would love to talk only about the soviets this is the weirdest coolest thing in the history of professional team sports i am so excited about this not just because they spent three days in spokane which is my hometown which i do not (laughs) normally admit to people so okay 1977 uh, uh, i know we started 1976 billy jean arranges a a sort of friendship tour exchange thing where they play a couple team matches in in russia and then a couple more in the u.s the result of that is 1977 the soviet national team plays in Pennsylvania, well, sort of, as a member of World Team Tennis. I mean, you have to, first of all, are you with me here? Is that the the weirdest thing that's yeah. ever happened in yes, American yes, team sports? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And um, the, pre, the, the real context about it is that, <clears throat> it shows you how radical Billy's vision was, is that this was 1977, and 1976 was the bicentennial, which was like this orgy of patriotism and nationalism of, you know, 200 years of the United States of America. And the next year, she brings the Soviet national team into the league. This is still the Cold War. You know, maybe it tamped down a bit, but it was still the Cold War. And um, it was something that they had been seeking out for a while. They had been trying to get uh, Olga Morozova and Alex Metrovelli to play in their league for quite a while, but the politics of it were too great. Um, uh, so the Soviet Union, you know, that was the time where people were amateur athletes and stuff um, because you were communist, so nobody was like, quote, a professional. But the biggest sports back then in, uh, in Russia were um, hockey, chess, weightlifting, and then tennis. Yeah, there's a there's a great way you put that in the book. I, I didn't write down the quote, but but it it I, I can hear the humor in it when when you say like yeah, tennis was becoming huge. It was only behind <laughs> hockey, weightlifting, something else, and yeah. and chess. Yeah, sure, yeah. it was huge, of course. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you, you understand the, the humor there. Um, so, uh, but tennis, world team tennis and the rise of the Russian tennis pro really intersect because all these players were fans of or went to those matches in, uh, um, in Moscow. Uh, you know, your whole, your whole programs really kind of, the whole uh, program kind of explodes. They never really, the problem for Tedis in Russia was that they, it's the weather and, and, the, and the money. They didn't have enough money for, for equipment and they didn't have great indoor facilities. So uh, it really, those players had to work very hard to, um, make that work uh, uh the most interesting part of that whole story so so anyway uh, we'll talk let's talk a little about this they the team they needed a team there was supposed to be a team in, in uh, a pennsylvania team that represented both philadelphia and pittsburgh and that idea just somehow wasn't working so they decided that philadelphia would become the home of the Soviet national team that they had a that built this relationship with and that they would play a uh, gun. They basically be a gun for hire team. That was a, a, it was a road show. It was like a, you know, it was like a touring band where for 44 games, they played, they played a few in Philadelphia, but they basically played as far away as like Spokane. You know, I mean, you can imagine them, the, the Soviet national team doing a tennis clinic in Spokane in that in that area in they're just to, I, I i don't want to be a jerk and correct you but no you cannot imagine a soviet tennis team doing a tennis <laughs> clinic in spokane <laughs> certainly not in the 1970s that's that is it's beyond bizarre the whole yeah. story yeah and um, um the one part of the story so obviously they didn't do very well you know they won some matches the most interesting match is the one where they played uh we had president jimmy carter and they played at the Carter. The Carters had been given a gift from the Soviet Union of building a stadium, a tennis court for them, which I can only imagine the financial shenanigans that went on with that one. Why were the Soviet Union building uh, this gift to honor Jimmy Connors, uh, J uh, Jimmy Carter, in his hometown of Plains, Georgia? If they anyway, built anything to honor Jimmy Connors, that would really be something. That would be that'd be even better. Um, so anyway, so there's this game that they play in Plains, Georgia, um, with uh, Billy Carter and uh, uh, Bobby Riggs is, is there, and you know it's like this whole kind of crazy craziness. So so they get sucked into Americana. I mean, first of all, the Soviets had a lot of reasons for the Soviet Union wanted to, you know, promote itself. It didn't have the best reputation in America, you know, so they saw this as like a goodwill kind of thing. And I, I, I and they, like I say in the book, they also thought they could win this league. But the players were playing out of suitcases. You know, tennis is a game where you have to concentrate. So how are you supposed to, and this was the problem with the league in general, was like tennis is a game of, you know, being grounded and confident and, relaxed and you're basically in world team tennis you're living out of a suitcase you know yeah so, and uh, it, I, I noticed as the league went on that that became truer of more and more teams i mean the soviets had the the hardest of it all because they were basically barnstorming for three months like like you say living out of a suitcase but you already mentioned the 
New Orleans Nets playing as the Sun Belt team, traveling all over. Uh, it seemed like every team at some point was playing some of their home matches elsewhere. And it seems to me like that's kind of drifting away from the mission of the league. Like they're, they're becoming this purveyor of tennis exhibitions to, you know, get the local fans to come out and see the star. And they're, they're drifting away from the idea of, like you say, root, root, root for the home team, which is I mean, probably the only way this works, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think the league thought the idea was like, you know, you, you buy, let's say you buy tickets for a tournament. You don't know who's going to be in the finals. You know, you could have a couple upsets that have like a real stinker of a match that you paid a lot of money for. So here was like an idea that you knew every night the Philadelphia Freedoms or then the New York Sets put, you know, or New York Sets after that, you knew Billie Jean King would be there. You went to go see the Boston Lobsters, you know you'd see Martina on and on, right? So that was their thinking of, of how this was supposed to work. Um, yeah, and, that, and that's the tricky thing is it, it, the way world team tennis works now is very explicitly star-driven, right? Because you might have yeah. John McEnroe signing up to do three games and that's it. So you, you'll buy tickets for the John McEnroe game or the Andy Roddick game. Uh, and that's not the original idea. The original idea is to turn tennis into a team sport where people can become fans of the Philadelphia Freedoms, but then they end up selling it like any other exhibition. It's like, you should come because you will get to see... Martina Navratilova. I mean, one of, one of the things, the questions that kept popping up throughout this book is why did certain teams fail? Why did the whole thing fail? And is, is that sort of the paradox that meant this whole thing was doomed from the beginning? That, I mean, tennis fans are, they're going to show up for a star. They're not going to show up for a team. Or it's, is there more to it than that? Well, they were trying to redefine the game, right? Um, there's an interesting part about... Uh, I don't know if you caught this in the book, but going into the 77 or 78 season, they do this survey of uh, the, the kind of, they hire a marketing company to, to look at the kind of people that are coming to world team tennis events. And it basically, kind of long story short, it basically was the exact same people who go to tournaments. Like, so they weren't really... Any idea, any of these ideas that were based on changing people's uh, views on the way the game of tennis is played was not working. Right. Yeah. So anything when they try, anything that they did, I mean, none of that. Like for instance, you want to talk about the ABA basketball, the legacy of the slam dunk contest and the three point shot remain. Um, I don't really, aside from like. Tennis being more free-spirited, like I, I really related to Racket Magazine. I kind of saw like the kind of this like kind of outsider view of um, of tennis. You know that kind of that's kind of like what these guys are talking. It's the closest thing I could find of what of people today who kind of have the view of uh, kind of like. Somebody described my book as the Dogtown of Tennis, Dogtown being the skateboarding uh, documentary. Uh, and it's kind of true in that, like, if you, the opening minutes of the skate of the Dogtown documentary uh, are uh, skate parks or everything's lily white, everyone's wearing white, everything's very well behaved, they're going to skate parks, there's uh, there's like these referees at the skate parks who tell you don't jump, you know, like, you know, 
everyone's in order and orderly and and then there comes this new scene that blows it up and nobody's wearing white and nobody's behaving and you know everyone's jumping off of you know swimming pools and you know and and half pipes and uh so you know there's you know billy jean's thing was you know it was definitely like on the edge you know the idea of like these play i I mean not just the fans i mean the if you read some of the stories of the first couple games i mean that the teams are getting into it yelling from one you know the philadelphia freedoms are screaming at the Pittsburgh triangles in the game, right? They're just screaming at them. They're like fighting. Ily Nastasi becomes the coach. He's playing in Hawaii. He's playing in Honolulu, Hawaii. Then he goes to LA and plays for Jerry Buss, the original owner of the, um, or the star owner of the, um, uh, he owned the LA Strings, but then the LA Lakers basketball team. So, but these guys were, you know, they were just misbehaved, radical. It was, it was just like a, like, the whole thing was was on the edge so um it just didn't really fit in you know it it just that didn't fit what tennis fans tennis fans just really wanted tennis they just at the end they just wanted tennis the way they had it and that's the lesson from all these things of what we i refer to them in there as like rebel sports leagues uh the aba and uh well you know this um World Hockey Association and uh, USFL or or World Football League, um, people didn't want it. People didn't want freedom of choice with their sports viewing. You know, there was the idea of in the seventies that anything goes, and we want to, you know, everything is like a science fiction movie, and we want to like, and, and you know, the sixties just happened, and everybody wants to reinvent the world and reinvent things, but. That really wasn't the case. Yeah, People, that, that's something that's, that's super interesting to me. That there's all these new ideas, and and they can become a laboratory for those new ideas to spread. Because some of the things that World Team Tennis has done eventually made it into to tennis, and like you say, some of the the ABA's innovations made it into the NBA. But for the most part, these were sideshows that eventually just faded away, and things mostly just went back to the way they were, and. I was trying to think of, of counterexamples of, of startup leagues that succeeded. And a couple more recent examples are, are women's leagues like the WNBA mm-hmm. or the, the, the National Women's Soccer League in the U.S. Yes, that, yes, correct. Like they're, they're not really providing a new product, except they're providing a great platform for, for very talented women that didn't exist before. So, I mean, it's, it's great that they're there, but they're not innovative in the way that the ABA or World Team Tennis was. And despite that, because of that, I don't know. Um, they've been successful. I mean, to varying degrees and very in different places, and you can caveat that all you want. But I mean, there's a lot of success there. They're doing a lot of things right, and they're they're getting rewarded for it. Um, so it's, it's just fascinating that there's there's some desire for something different, but then either there's not much, or people won't pay for it, or or something. There's two kinds of sports leagues, as I've kind of learned, is that there's um. What the original World Team Tennis was trying to do, or the original, or, or any of these sports like NFL or Major League Baseball, they're um, they're driven by the fans. They're fan driven. Uh, they but they're the ones who buy the seats. They're the ones who buy the merch. You know, and those are the strongest models. Then there's a lot of examples of um, 
artificial constructs. Like, um, I don't know. I mean, I went to one iteration of the of World Team Tennis, and it was I don't think anyone there had actually bought a ticket. You know, they'd been given a ticket. They sit in the Bloomberg box. They sit in the Chase Bank box. They sit in the some seats that were given away by people who work there. I mean, maybe there was like two hundred. You know, like there's like two hundred people there, and and I don't think I mean I didn't pay for my tickets, and I don't think many people did. You know, so and it's um uh there's corporate um backing on it like a lot of people want to support billy jean king right you know it's like it's a smart it's a smart political thing and um but i don't i question whether like world team i mean i i not challenging world team tennis but i, I kind of question as to whether it's more of like a corporate funded artificial construct like uh and i and that might even be the case with uh if there's forces behind the WNBA, if the NBA is is hiring, uh, like if WNBA is just being funded by the NBA, as kind of like a smart business move in a, in the long in the long term. Like I, I don't know how that stuff works. I mean I don't I haven't seen those matches to comment, um, but uh, be you have to watch you have to look at sports when you see them on tv and kind of figure out which ones are real and which ones are well they're not not real they're just not um uh you know they're not organic let's say yeah i think you that's know, a good, the that's original a world really team tennis was organic you know you asked what the difference was you know in a nutshell there was this organic sense of what billy jean was was proclaiming for sure so last question to wrap this up, um, to take a bit of a left turn here. You've mentioned already you're known as a music writer. You've got this background both as a, a music writer, doing documentaries, uh, DJing. Obviously, you know your way around certain music scenes. And here you are choosing to write a book about tennis. And this is a connection that, that pops up again and again and again. You know, I'm constantly meeting serious tennis fans who turn out to be, you know, concert violinists or mm -hmm. jazz saxophone players like me or for yep. it, something nice. like that. This connection is, is, is incessant. And I mean, granted, most of the connections aren't between tennis fans and experts in punk music, yeah. but <laughs> I still think there, there's something there. I mean, it, it, what do you think, what, what do you think drives this? Why are the same people attracted to, to tennis and music? Um, I think there's something, uh, I wouldn't say there's something musical about it, but there's something very creative about it. And um, I think uh, there's a, you are correct. I found in my research of this book, I was stunned by the people that I know from my world who are, were not just tennis players or, but were like world team tennis fans even. So um, I think it's kind of like this dirty little secret. Um, of uh, people who don't might not talk too much about about these connections, um, I think uh, it's a really intellectual. Despite what you may uh, have heard of any musician, even punk rock or otherwise, or or a, or, or a classical musician, I mean, they they to do this kind of stuff, you have to be smart in a certain way. 
You know, you have to be cerebral. Um, and this is a tennis is the most cerebral game, if you ask me. Um, I think it's uh, the indiv- the and also the uh, pursuit of individuality, or, or pursuit of the individual, I should say, is is a really important part of it too. Um, but I agree that there is a the creatives. I mean, you know, you want to end on a term of. Uh, talking about somebody who is a creative who is kind of on the fringe grew up around the fringes of this this is uh Lars Ulrich from Metallica whose dad uh was a you know one of the greatest danish players of the modern age and uh grew up going to Golden Gators and LA Strings matches and um you know, he's one of the biggest stars in the world. He, uh, the story is he moved to, uh, uh, he moved from uh, Denmark where he was one of the best players in the country to Southern California where he wasn't even the best player on his block. So, um, you know, uh, but you know, there is a creativity that comes with, from the, the, the side of tennis that I would, I would, I would contribute that to. And it's, uh, it's a nice song. Yeah, there's. Um, you make a good point that the tennis is often like the hidden second interest for a lot of people, and it's it's telling that that you've written several music books, and then you write one tennis book. There's a lot more people out there like you in that regard than who write four tennis books and then write their one music book or write their one right. baseball book or whatever other thing they do. But I feel like there's a lot of of closet, very serious. Uh, tennis fans and tennis players out there who who we don't know about. Actually, my my friend Carl Bialik, who is usually on the show and runs a Thirty Love podcast, he's done a great job of uncovering a lot of those people and talking to them about the the tennis side of their life. Uh, Stephen, I've I've taken enough of your time. Um, thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate your interest in the book. I mean, it's really like a labor of love. I think it's 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 like a rock and roll tennis book. You know, if you like rock, if you like music, if you like, if if you want something that's a little different than what's coming from, uh, if you want something a little different uh, view of uh, this, I think we we come pretty hard with it. And in, in case it hasn't come through in our conversation, one of the great things about this book is, I mean, obviously you've done your research. There's there's solid history in there, but it's funny. I mean, yeah. not just what you're writing, but all the, all the quotes you've chosen. In there's. I probably laughed out loud 20 times reading this book. That's and incredible. I, love I don't that. think you can say that very often about a, a tennis history book. So, I mean, great work. I really appreciate that you put all the, the time and love into creating this thing. So, again, I've been talking to Stephen Blush. He's the author of Bustin' Balls, World Team Tennis, 1974 to 1978, Pro Sports, Pop Culture, and Progressive Politics. You can find him on Twitter at the Stephen Blush. Uh, he has his own podcast, Alas, Not About Tennis, at least until we, we convince him otherwise. So thanks again, Stephen. Thanks everyone for listening. Go buy the book and we'll see you next time.